Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience, Amateur Hour. Thank you so much for tuning back in. I'm so excited that you're here. So today, I want to dive into the neuroscience of sleep, memory, and really good afternoon naps. This episode is partially inspired by my all-time favorite room at work, which is the confocal microscopy room. Uh, Think small, windowless, dark, and isolated. You can't hear anything. I bring my little space heater in there and I get all cozy because it has this big comfy chair while you're waiting for your images to load. Honestly, my coworker kind of calls it my cave, but yeah. Despite being hyped up on like three to six cups of coffee a day, being in that confocal room always makes me want to take a midday nap. And I think we can all remember our preschool years when naps were built into our schedules in the middle of the day. Like those were the good old days. As an adult, not so much. But what if they were? Is there any neurological benefit or detriment to taking naps in the first place? So in broad terms, some studies have shown that in addition to reducing daytime sleepiness, naps can provide a number of neurological benefits, including memory consolidation, preparation for more learning, executive functioning enhancement, and a boost in emotional stability. However, the other side of that story says that increased napping has been associated with cognitive decline, hypertension, diabetes, etc. Shall we find out why this is? I say yes. So let's dive straight into the neuroscience of sleep and memory. You may have heard of the sleep cycle, the idea that sleep is composed of multiple physiologically unique stages. As you drift off, you enter non-REM sleep one. Here, your body starts to relax and the muscles twitch. Everything generally kind of slows down. The brain is still fairly active, producing high-amplitude theta waves, which are slow brain waves occurring primarily in the frontal part of the brain. Just as a quick clarification, because brain waves have always been a confusing point for me, your brain is constantly producing bursts of electrical activity, and different patterns and frequencies of these electrical pulses produce different kinds of brain waves, which are associated with different aspects of cognition and brain state. So, from non-REM sleep 1, you move into non-REM sleep 2, where the body temperature begins to drop and the heart rate slows. Now, this stage takes up about 50% of the average sleep cycle and lasts about 20 minutes. The brain begins to produce bursts of rapid, rhythmic brain activity called sleep spindles which is a really fun name. (laughs) But now that everything is kind of slowed down, your body drifts off into deep, deep sleep. Non-REM sleep stage three, otherwise known as delta sleep, because during this stage, the slowest brain waves, delta waves, begin to emerge. Finally, your body transitions into REM, which stands for rapid eye movement. In this stage, your body is immobilized, Your, your muscles are effectively paralyzed, but your brain is on fire. It lights up with activity and your eyes move rapidly. This is also when you dream. So it kind of makes sense that when your body, <laughs> your body's paralyzed so you don't actually start acting out all the crazy shit you dream about. Because I'm pretty sure my last dream 
from like two nights ago was about a car chase, and I definitely don't want to be acting that out in real life. So during sleep, the body shifts between sleep stages, beginning with non-REM 1, moving into non-REM 2, then non-REM 3, and then again to non-REM 2, and then to REM, with these cycles repeating over and over again, each cycle lasting about 90 to 110 minutes long. We know that sleep is vital. In fact, we can't survive without sleep. The longest anyone has gone without sleeping and not dying is 11 days and like 24 minutes, a record held by a teenager, (laughs) Randy Gardner, who decided to break the previous world record for his high school science fair, and thankfully for his efforts, won first prize and a fun trip to the local naval base to get his brainwaves measured. We don't know why we need sleep to survive, but we do know that after just 24 hours of sleep deprivation, ask anyone who's ever pulled an all-nighter, the effects on the body and the mind are horrible. Sleep is important for development, to conserve energy when we need to, to clear waste from our brain, to modulate our immune systems, and a bunch more functions. But one of the most important functions, and one that is a very active area of research at the moment, is the role of sleep in memory consolidation. So let's learn a little bit more about how memories form. We can begin to form a memory by interacting with some sort of external stimulus. A lecture in class, an interaction with a friend, or a really shitty date. That's called acquisition. Following acquisition, the memory representation undergoes several subsequent stages of development, in your brain, commonly known as consolidation. Consolidation is the idea that the memory becomes stable in your mind, resistant to interference from competing or disruptive factors. Importantly, it also becomes long-lasting. Or if you're me and you don't remember what you took three semesters ago, not very long-lasting at all. Uh, But the point is, it can be called back at a later time. Memory consolidation is associated with specific gene expression and changes in neuron networks whose interruption can actually result in memory loss. So it's actually a very physical process. So once memories are consolidated, they can be retrieved, remembered when you need them to, such as lecture material for a test, or when you're on your next Tinder date and need to remember how bad the last one went. Memories then undergo another process called reconsolidation a way of updating your memories and your brain's way of storing them. Effectively, reconsolidating your memories allows your brain to kind of take out the filing cabinet and reorganize your memory banks and incorporate all all that new knowledge that you've acquired, such as don't go on date number three. So let's talk about how sleep and memory intersect. In 1885, Ebbinghaus, the father of experimental memory research, published a series of studies he had conducted on himself about forgetting lists of nonsense word pairs that established the now well-known forgetting curve, the idea that memory retention declines over time. He observed that forgetting was reduced when he slept during the retention interval. Further studies along the same line found that depriving someone of sleep impaired that person's ability to remember things. These findings brought about the idea that forgetting something is not so much a matter of decay of old impressions and associations as it is a matter of interference, inhibition, or obliteration of old memories by new ones. Sleep may represent a time period in which new encoding of external or internal stimulus is greatly reduced, barring any interferences and facilitating memory retention. 
As researchers learned more about sleep, they looked to determine how different aspects of memory consolidation are functionally related to different sleep stages. And spoiler alert, they are. Focus started on REM sleep as a key phase, during which memory consolidation occurs due to the presence of vibrant dreams and individuals remembering those dreams. Studies in animals corroborated those findings at the time, showing that there appeared to be an increase in REM sleep after learning tasks. One theory was that REM sleep may be involved in the erasure or filtering of information. One research group using a neurocomputational model of associative learning suggested that dreaming reduced unwanted and bizarre forms of representation in memory. Basically things that probably wouldn't benefit you to remember in real life, which may have enhanced learning the next day as well as retrieving memories acquired before sleep. However, More recent studies have not found much evidence in support of this theory. In one study, volunteers were asked to voluntarily suppress unwanted memories. But sleep, and particularly REM sleep, appeared to counteract the suppression rather than enhancing the forgetting of unwanted memories. In addition, experimental design appeared to be flawed in early works. The way that animals are restricted from going into REM sleep is that they are placed on a small platform surrounded by water. It's it's like a flower pot. Think flower pot. And when REM sleep occurs and the aforementioned muscular paralysis begins, the animal falls in the water. Now, this kind of awakening could be incredibly traumatic and may have had some sort of impact on memory retention beyond the lack of REM sleep. If every time, you know, you started falling into deep sleep and someone pushed you in a swimming pool, you probably wouldn't remember, you know, what color the square was 15 minutes ago. But given the importance of sleep, researchers have continued to try and find a link between REM sleep and memory consolidation. A more recent study out of Japan in 2020 found that sparse activity of hippocampal adult-born neurons, a rare kind of brain cell that develops when you're already an adult as opposed to when you're like a, a newborn or an embryo. Now these neurons, specifically during REM sleep, have been shown to be necessary for memory consolidation. These adult-born neurons, which are active during learning, reactivate during REM sleep, perhaps aiding in the flow of memories and information from one brain region to another for long-term consolidation. Further, another important finding is REM sleep may be vital in strengthening and modulating emotional memories. One study had 16 young men learn 50 neutral pictures and 50 negative pictures before falling asleep into either slow-wave-rich sleep or REM-rich sleep. They found that recognition was better for the emotional pictures than the neutral pictures after REM compared to slow-wave sleep. REM may represent a unique brain state that allows emotionally modulated integration of memory traces that had been previously consolidated. It may also be responsible for the disengagement of successfully consolidated memory traces from the hippocampus, a brain region that's known to be involved in learning and memory, uh, so that the information can flow to another brain region for later retrieval. Now, as focus shifts away from REM sleep and memory consolidations, it finds itself focused anew on other stages, specifically slow-wave sleep, otherwise known as deep restorative sleep or non-REM sleep. This stage of sleep is primarily characterized by delta waves and has been shown to be important for the reinforcement of declarative memory, memory devoted to facts, names, dates, events, and so on. 
Multiple studies have shown that with increased slow-wave sleep, there was significant enhancement of the consolidation of declarative memories. So if you want some life advice from me, which no hard feelings if you don't, uh, if you have a big test coming up, you might benefit more from a good night of sleep than cramming those extra few hours. One explanation for how this occurs is that when you're awake, memories are encoded in the neocortex and, more strongly, in the hippocampus. During slow-wave sleep, sharp wave ripples are observed that accompany a memory replay of encoded information in the hippocampus, which stimulates the transfer of memory-related information to the neocortex. There, these memory traces (laughs) are strengthened and ready for recall. So you can remember that, for example, World War II started September 1st, 1939, for your next history exam. So what about naps? Naps generally range between 20 and 90 minutes, which is not really enough time to complete a full sleep cycle. So are there still benefits to naps? And how did their lengths affect those benefits? It has been generally proven that, yes, naps improve mood, reduce sleepiness, increase alertness, and improve memory consolidation. One experiment showing this finding was where people were invited to spend some time in the lab of Harvard sleep scientist Robert, Professor Robert Stickgold. They were trained to navigate their way through a virtual maze around lunchtime and then tucked up into bed shortly afterwards. Scientists monitored their brain waves via EEG and woke them up shortly before they fell into REM sleep. They were able to show that the nappers were able to perform much better at navigating the, the maze than participants who didn't nap. So these participants are probably making use of that non-REM sleep to block interference from external stimuli, to strengthen and consolidate those memories, and make them more capable of navigating the mazes. They're also probably making up for any sleep date that may have incurred during the course of the previous night's sleep, or lack thereof. Naps appear to be especially important for young children. I personally think that this is because when you're young, you're constantly being bombarded by new information and new experiences, and your brain is rapidly developing, and to ensure that all those memories are consolidated, naps, and that extra sweet, sweet, slow wave sleep is super important. Those benefits definitely extend to adult humans as well, but perhaps they're not, it's not as crucial as when you're still wearing diapers. Now, the second half of the question becomes, are there any downsides to napping? How could they be? It's one of the greatest things in the world. But if you've ever taken one of those get home from work, conk out, and don't know what time it is when you wake up kind of naps, you might know that you might feel groggy and unmotivated to do anything afterwards. In addition, you might mess up your sleep schedule later in the evening and end up getting less sleep overall. But one study examined the correlation between total sleep, accounting for both nighttime sleep and naps during the day, and the risk of death and major cardiovascular events such as heart attacks. They found that if you're getting between 6 to 8 hours of sleep a night, you are at the lowest risk of death and cardiovascular events. In addition, daytime napping was associated with an increased risk of death in people with more than 6 hours of nighttime sleep, but not in those with less than 6 hours of nighttime sleep. So if you're, ma- if you're napping to make up for lost nighttime sleep, no extra risk. But if you're sleeping more than you're supposed to, your risk increases. Which I feel like I'm being a little bit of Captain Obvious here, but I get the feeling that if you're sleeping much more than you should be and are taking more naps as a result, there's probably something wrong. Your body is fatigued, and that might be a sign that you are not in good health 
and you might want to get checked out. I want to leave you with quote scientifically backed unquote advice on how to take the perfect afternoon nap. Unfortunately, not all of you have access to my space heater and confocal room, but here we go. You should probably eat a delicious, nutritious lunch, and then right around 1 to 3 p.m., so you don't mess up your sleep schedule later in, later in the evening, you should find a cozy, comfortable corner and set an alarm for 20 to 40 minutes. Maybe push to 90 if you're feeling like you didn't get enough sleep the night before. But too much longer, and you might wake up groggy, but I think a solid half hour will get you the magic power of memory consolidation, leaving you ready to stuff your brain with more knowledge. But that is a bite-sized overview of the neuroscience of sleep, memory, and ye good old afternoon nap. I want to highlight that this is an incredibly active area of research, and new theories and research papers are coming out every single day. I highly recommend doing more research if this is an area in which you, which you are excited about. I've cited quite a few papers by Professor Matthew Walker over at UC Berkeley in California. So if you're curious, I recommend heading over to his lab website and maybe even reading his book, Why We Sleep. I hope that you enjoyed the episode and you learned something new. I've cited all my relevant sources and papers in the show notes, and you should keep an eye out on Instagram for some cool figures that I think are pertinent. Please rate, review, and subscribe, and if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neurosciencemateurhour at gmail.com, or DM me at neurosciencemateurhour on Instagram. This podcast is, is available on pretty much any platform I can think of, so please recommend it to your friends and loved ones. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, please contact me, and you'll probably see an episode about it soon. Happy researching, and I hope to see you again.